Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Zen. And uh, we've just been to the electric to see Don't Look Now. Classic uh, sort of British horror, thriller, um, psychological drama thing from 1973. I mean really classic, like if you haven't heard of it. But I haven't seen it ever. I've never seen it until now. Really? Uh-huh. Well that's interesting. Uh, I mean I for some reason I assumed you had. No, it's one of those things that I feel I should have. But you know, kind yeah. of, there are a lot of those films one never, one never sees as much as we're not. Uh, I suppose the first thing is that I am slightly nonplussed, really. Um, I think there might be an element... Be nonplussed? Well, I think there might be... uh, Because of of its uh, sort of perceived greatness. Um, It's interesting, because I thought in the first five minutes of the film, I thought this is the work of a great filmmaker. You know, I kind of somebody who's trying to do something with film rather than the, you know, the stupid beats per plot blah yeah. formula. You know, somebody who has not read Sid Field and talked about three arc structures and shit like that. I mean, just, you know, the associative editing from the water and the girl, you know, the inside the house, the outside the house, you know, kind of, you you know, the rendering of the rain poetic, the you know, the... The filming on reflections. I thought, you know, this is great. This is the this is the work of a great filmmaker, really. Just... Yeah, I love the editing. I love the opening and the editing. The associative editing does come back. I think the sex scene is fantastic as well for that yes. reason. It cuts between them having sex and then dressing for dinner uh, later. Um, but I think there might be an element of certain things about the film being so imaginative that they became more normalised in some sense. Maybe not the associative editing exactly. Okay. I mean, you don't, you hardly see that these days. Let um, me put it another way, because I came out with the question, you know, wh- wh- what is the point where a story is kind of symbolic and requires interpretation? Yeah. And when is it just badly told? You know, because I definitely came out of the cinema feeling... You know, this has this is great. This has such great things, mm. but I don't get it. That was kind of. I texted my brother. He's seen it before and he likes it. But I texted him saying, "You know, please tell me everything you think because I don't get it really." Mm. So it lost me. And to be fair, this is an immediate reaction, and I think it is a film which would um, benefit from further viewing. I think it would. It would. Um, but when it came to uh, Donald Sutherland following the red-coated mm. figure. Uh, and then it turns around and it's revealed that it's this kind of old dwarf. Um, and she stabs him and his life flashes before his eyes. Well, that's why I think it, it can be taken as that. I mean, nothing is too clear. Um, that's the kind of thing where I was hoping that in in all of the images that come back uh, and the way they would be chosen and, and associated, I was hoping that it would really sort of make things make sense, mm. clarify things. Everything that we'd seen would kind of bring everything into a into a kind of logical sense. The only thing that I think it really clarifies is actually just after that, where um, when you see the funeral, it becomes clear that... He'd had a premonition. That that was a premonition when he saw it earlier on. Um, so let me tell you the things that I loved about the film. I think uh, Julie Christie is fantastic and fantastically beautiful. I actually, I don't remember seeing her more beautiful than this. You know, she's, she's, 
she, well, joy is the wrong word, but she's endlessly fascinating to just see, right? So I love that. I loved the tone and the ambiance of the film. You know, you really get the sense of, of, of grief, yeah, mm. uh, throughout. I love the way the kind of Venice is shot. It's all kind of desolate and isolated and lonely and echoey, you know, and full of vermin and also fog and rain. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, you know, it's beautiful and ugly. It's beautiful and desolate. Yeah, mm. it's kind of, you know, so it kind of, it gives that sense of an interiority. I love the way that, um, you know, there are these shots on very, very narrow streets, right? So that the widescreen flattens out the edges and people seem to be coming from the center of the frame, you know, and then kind of filling it. It has kind of like an eerie uh, effect. I also like that the two protagonists look so hale and hardy amidst the midst of these ruins, right? You know, mm -hmm. I can't, I, I was looking at the, just the tone and the color of Julie Christie's skin. And Donald Sutherland is the same. It's all rosy, right? It's all like almost they're the only sign of life in this city. Mm. Um, so I loved all of that. Uh, but then there were things that I just didn't get. So, you know, what is it with the priest? Yeah, because he's connected to these premonitions and the supernatural and so on as well. And I just don't get exactly... Yeah, well, he sort of seems to be. I mean, it's one of those things that only comes through the editing. So much is left unsaid yeah. in the film. And so, uh, you know, I mean, literally the only thing that you get about the idea that these are premonitions is when the woman who's blind, you know, it's revealed that she, she, or she claims or her sister claims, uh, she's psychic. And then later, she, um, she says, yeah, your husband has the sight too, even if he doesn't know it, but that is it. Right. Yeah. It's not, and so the, the priest is only connected to, to any of this mm. through the associative ed editing. Mm. Um, but he recurs throughout. Yeah. So, you know, so I don't quite know what his role in the narrative is. I don't get it. There's also a serial murderer on the loose in Venice, right? Bodies keep getting dragged and you see him in the inspector and you see his files, right? So, so kind of that I eventually got because initially it's mysterious, but you know, by virtue of the repetition, you get it. The one thing that is ambivalent and interestingly ambivalent, but also maybe something that prevents me from making sense of the film is that the narrative as a narrative never clearly grounds you in the supernatural. No. Right? So it's always, you know, somebody saying something, you know, that it could be supernatural or it could just be like, you know, these old biddies like who believe something, right? And the film doesn't take a stand. So it walks that fine line where it could be possible, but actually, yeah. Kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, there are things that kind of you can't explain away. So that bit at the beginning where the slide turns red, right? Mm. You know, but is that just an expressive moment in the film, or is it something supernatural? That's not clear. I didn't, I didn't find that to be a question that the film was. I didn't find that to be an ambiguity the film was proposing. It, it did seem to me um, clear, or at least my read of it was that it was clear that it was proposing that this, the second size is real. I mean. The main sort of concrete, if you like, uh, or strongest bit of evidence of that being the funeral coming back and it being exactly the same, and you having seen it so clearly earlier. Yes, I um, suppose. Um, but the, but a I lot suppose, of... but throughout the film, 
you're thinking, you know, is this somebody's point of view? Is this an invocation of grief in the way that things don't make sense? Is it just a kind of question of belief? You don't see any kind of external objective, you, even that no, scene. But I think that is actually one of the really great things about the film, is, well, I think is so the too. subjectivity to everything, and, and that it puts you in the state of mind of these characters. I think the thing about it being, about connecting the sort of questionable supernatural element to grief, mm. and how it, it the connection is then sort of, again, largely through the editing, that um, these memories, these images of the daughter from the, from the opening scene keep coming back mm. and they just show up for a few frames and go away and they will be related to things or maybe not. Maybe they will just come back. But the mm. idea that, like, it, the idea that the people, the parents have been, particularly the dad, has been psychologically damaged, you know, as he would be, um, by the death of his daughter that he can't help those images flashing into his head. I think the film really effectively puts you into his headspace. Yes, well, I think that's one of the fascinating things about the film because, you know, if you read it allegorically, yeah, as about grief rather than about the supernatural, um, then the film is telling you that the person most affected, grief-struck and depressed, hospitalized, is the woman, Mm. right? It's the wife. But actually, the person who ends up dying because of it is the husband. Yeah, and you can make sense of that because, you know, he's the one who tried to rescue her, who's, you know, tried to breathe life into her, who failed, right? Yeah. You know, so I thought that was very interesting. And he's also the one who, when confronted early on with the idea that um, this blind woman has seen the daughter and says she's okay and all that sort of thing, um, wants, you know, or, or said, has said, oh, she says she's okay from beyond the mm. grave, whatever. You know, he completely rejects it and says it's stupid mm. um, and the wife doesn't you know she she thinks there's a chance it might be true mm. and keeps going back to these women and develops a relationship with them mm. you know the dad is the one who says no I'm not having it which I think you for one thing you, you kind of might expect in a stereotypical way like him just going no nah, don't be daft mm. and, and she being more open to um, something silly but something silly I think uh, kind of seems to be true but then She's not the one, as you say, who then appears to have as much trouble handling um, the death of the daughter. Mm. And I don't think it is just because, well, maybe we can armchair psychologise, but I don't think it is just because he was the one who tried and failed to rescue her. Um, but there's, but I, I think it's like the film sort of suggests to me that the, it, the emotional um, closedness of the dad to this um, is related to the fact that he can't stop it coming up. You know, mm. the fact that he sees these images. Mind you, she does as well. She she actually sees that red hooded figure first, but then mm. he sees it too, and, and then he's the one who ends up following it. Um, I don't know, it just it feel, feels like sort of the more, the film sort of suggests the more he tries to repress it, mm. the more he can't stop it from showing up. Mm. You know? Yes, that's a plausible reading. Um, what did you make? I mean, there were many things so that are clearly symbolic, but that I can't decipher. So they're restoring a church, right? And so one of the things is he's putting this very ugly replacement for an icon. Yeah. It's like this. Yeah. Gargoyle figure gargoyle on the side head, of the church. Yeah. Um, cause they're all decrepit and yeah. And, and that clearly has some kind of symbolism. Right, so he's about to fall down, and clearly the, the about to fall down is a, is something that recurs in, throughout the film. Yeah, the sense of 
you know, falling and about to fall and the threat to fall happened several, several times. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't get it. So is there some significance of him embracing that gargoyle, you know, when he's up there? Um, there were other things like, you know, what's the significance of the mosaic and the gold? Because that's just also before he falls. And then you see the gold pieces on the floor, right? I kind of. I think there's something general about those things, which I didn't have a read on them specifically. Why was a gargoyle chosen or why was a mosaic chosen? But there is an idea in them of um, replacement and copies. And certainly with the mosaic, because he says, you know, they've got these new mosaic pieces to, to restore this old mosaic in the church. And he wants to compare the two mm. bits of glass to see if they're the same colour, to see if it'll work. Mm. And there's this thing about them being the same. And I think that's in a thematic sense, recurs throughout. You've got the thing about this this red-hooded figure that resembles um, his daughter, and you really aren't sure. Mm. Um, and then at the end, it's sort of... Well, I say turns out not to be. Maybe it is, like... Maybe that's what people look like when they die in the world of Dunning now. I don't know. Um, but there is a sense of um, replacement or copying or kind mm. of doppelgangering... Around well, that. Yeah, doppelgangering for sure. I mean, you know, um, the girl in the red hood, yeah. <laughs> you know, the following around Venice, you know, um, the connection with the clergyman, the being followed by the detective, the him chasing after her, her chasing after him. There's all these patternings. Yeah, I'm just kind of unclear mm. as to their signification. Yeah. I mean, you know that they're significant, but you don't know exactly what they signify or how they fit into an overall. Well, you see a pattern, but I can't decipher it. <laughs> yeah. Which, again, might not be a bad yeah. thing, but it's frustrating because, you know. I mean, I think that is one of the things where, it, you know, it's so that makes it so clear that, that having now seen the whole thing on a second viewing, you'll start to notice things in a way. Yes. I, I, I think that's one of those things. It's kind of unavoidable that we can't have that talking about it right now. Um, yes. Mind you, but I like films but, like that. I like films, oh, yeah. you know, that uh, make you want to see them again um, and give you stuff to talk about, really. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my thought on leaving the cinema wasn't, okay, at least I've seen that now. You know, which I think if it had been, like, a reasonable film from the from the past I'd heard was clack and I just wasn't that interested in it, turned mm. out, I'd be like, okay, I've seen it, mm. move on. But this I would be interested in going back, mm. you know? There's such interesting things. I remember, you know, the scene where they go to the Vaporetto, and it's filmed from inside the boat, right? And you think, like, why? You know, so it's all streaked, it's dirty. You hear the sounds properly, but the image is kind of partial, slightly dirty, with moments of clarity, but moments where, you know, the, the, the dirt and the water is kind of preventing you from seeing. Yeah, quite I don't clear. remember this scene. Which is this? It's uh, when she, he, he, he takes her to the airport and they go in the boat. Right. Yeah, that, it's a blue boat. And it's all filmed from inside the boat, but they're outside yes. on the pier. Right. Kind of, it's, it's full of interesting things like that. But, you know, again, I'm not kind of quite sure how to read them, really. I think, I think that line that he says right at the beginning about um, nothing is what it seems. Yeah. And they're talking about the lake. And, you know, if the world's round, why is a lake flat? Yes. And then he goes, oh, actually, well, she finds out, you know, if a lake can, if a lake's huge, then it can be noticeably curved. He goes, ah, nothing is what it seems. And that line, I think, is, like, key. 
yes. to everything. Yes, because it's all right. it's all about it's all about these 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 copies or or mistaken identities or um, wanting to make something look like something else. I mean, the whole restoration of the church is about that. Mm. Wanting to put it back to what it was as close to what it was as they can. Isn't yeah. it doesn't rise at the start? Doesn't the doesn't the wife say something? This is in England about um I can't tell the difference between the new and the old windows that he'd done in a church, something like that. Ah, right. But some... yeah, I, I'm pretty, probably right, I don't remember it. Um, but I was struck, certain things were very striking. So at the, at the beginning, when you see their house in the country, and you have like this kind of idyllic English kind of scene, right, with it's raining, it's in the country, there's a fire inside, you know, quite cozy. Um, but it's something odd because the house is like two thirds is like brick and then one third is cladding and white cladding and you know it's just an image but mm. it already kind of disjoints everything yeah you know, I was very struck by that and actually it's just a, I suppose an emotional response yeah but it was weird it's like the house had been divided into two thirds I, I, at first I thought is it two houses you know yeah because it's like a Georgian house but like one third has been painted like cream, yeah. Mm. Yeah. What elements of it do you think you would see in a horror film of today? Do you think? I, I, I suppose another. Maybe that's not exactly what I want to ask, but kind of what do you think? What strikes you as being original for its time? Well, I think it's all original, and actually, I think you know, kind of your question makes me think, because I don't think you would see very much in a in a horror film today of what you see here because everything would be too neatly explained and the violence the accent would be on the violence and so on it would be more likely to be considered an art film today with how little it wants to clarify its plot i think that's right i mean so so my point i suppose was going to be that you wouldn't see very much of this in a horror film today and you definitely wouldn't see any of this or very little of this in a mainstream film today because you know what we have to remember is this was a mainstream film it's not mm. you know some little side thing right you know it was a mainstream film with a national release and so on and stars and stars so um so you just wouldn't i just think you wouldn't see this it's kind of you know when people talk about 70s filmmaking this is one of the things uh this would be one of the examples where you know it's kind of it's about evoking feeling, really, um, rather than about articulating every plot point so that you get it. Um, it puts me in mind, in modern terms, it puts me in mind most of Under the Skin, which was Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Glazer, was it? Yes, yes. And he did I, Birth as well, which I think has similar kind of elliptical sorts yes, of storytelling. Yes, that's interesting. And, and a generation uh, of, of a feeling yeah, overall. I can that, see that. That it wants to evoke. Which, I, I mean, I didn't like Under the Skin very much when I first saw it, but I think I think I was unfair to it. And yes, I love it. I mean, it beca- it's also a film that becomes richer and richer each time you see it. Um, um, as I'm sure this does. I mean, the other thing that really struck me about this film was really the Technicolor. It's so brilliant. It's a film that looks so brilliant. So everything is like brown tones, really. You know, um, but then you have like this technicolor red that kind of seeps out at you and that recurs throughout the film, right? Like, so if you look at the film, there's always a touch of red 
even when you're not seeing the girl or the ghost or the you know the dwarf uh you know uh, um Julie Christie will be wearing red boots mm. or Donald Sutherland will have a red scarf neckerchief. look like a scarf or yeah. like Doctor Who he looked like so there's always like that splash of red that's so vivid in technicolor that it stands out in the middle of all these muddy mm. browns or you know it's kind of it's a very very interesting kind of look yeah that shot very early on of the slide and then the drop of blood yes and the blood's kind of I don't know, it like grows. Expanding through the side, yeah. Yeah, that was, a, that was amazing. Yeah, and it seemed it. directed because it didn't just trickle through. Exactly. It curved up. It moves. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. the use of red is so sort of striking in the film and it's always done with this, it has a slightly shocking effect at times when, when those shots of, um, of, of the girl reflected in mm. the little river or lake at the start come back. You know, it's always this flash of red, and the, and the thing of the the seeing the hooded figure mm. peeking around a corner and going away. You know, I, I think the thing is there are certain things in that respect that I think do resemble things you would see today, but these days it would always be accompanied by a sting, a musical sting. Going, ah! Yes, you know, there'll be a lot of that. That was interesting actually, because I thought the use of sound was quite wonderful, but now I'm thinking of the music and I can't remember it. No, it didn't leave an impression, I suppose. Mm. Um, mm. Anyway, just a yeah. thought. Yeah. Um, so, um, anyway, I feel a kind of, you know, we're a bit dull, really, because <laughs> I'm sure there's a million interesting things to say about the film, but at the moment I'm just kind of stymied, except to say, you know, that, uh, that I loved it. Yeah, like, but I loved it without quite understanding it yeah so what i loved about it was like i wasn't raptured by the experience um you know and the look and and i just think that julie christie is you know like garbor people like that one of the most vivid presences in the cinema mm. like um uh, and and she's really at her most beautiful in this actually it's just stunning to look at her um the sex scene was fantastic. It really, it actually struck me as quite explicit. There was yes. one shot in it that was practically pornographic. Oh, you know, I thought. Um, but um, I mean, thinking of, and it went on for a very long time as well. And he got kind of it was lovemaking from sort of beginning to end. You know, yeah. And um, yeah, and then that was the first time I got the inkling of with the with the way it was edited, cross cut essentially with. Um, the scenes of them later dressing and going out. Um, that was the first time I kind of explicitly thought I got the sense of um, seeing two things at once, seeing mm. two times at once. Yes. You know, like there is a way in which the film doesn't let you know when it's the when it's showing you something out of time. Yeah, you know? so, so it's, that, it's that, back and forth, past and present and future, but it doesn't signal it to you. you yeah. Know, like, um, so yes, that's very interesting as well. Um, I think something else that you might see, you might think of um, it being uh, comparable to modern horror, is the way in which it so explicitly uh, sort of connects theme to action in a sort of I don't, that's 
That sounds dumb. But like you know how we're talking about or allegorizes is a better term. You know how we're talking the, these days about how all these horror films are so explicitly about something that else mm. they're talking about. You know this sort of thing. Which and that's always kind of been the case. And people have read into mm. horror, especially for a very long time, in sci-fi as well. Um, but I think that's something that like the more people talk about, it, the more people are aware of it, and more people do it deliberately. Maybe mm. um, the more people try to make their films allegories for things mm. allegories for parenting or allegories for wherever it might be that's something that's very clear in this it is mm. a project of the film um, yes um that's that i suppose is why i changed my question from what would you see today into what do you think was original about it for the time because that question of whether that is original about it for the time i think everything was original about it for the time i mean you mentioned the sex scene that's original for the time yeah you know um Kind of, uh, and actually, I think the emphasis being on grief, because I think the emphasis is on grief rather than on horror. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think accenting that is to me original, and also I think having the uh, male figure die and be in danger rather than making it about the female figure being in danger is also interesting. So he mm. thinks something's happened to her, but actually the one who is constantly under threat is him. So I think that's original. That is really interesting, actually. I haven't thought about it that way. Uh, She's the final girl. He's the final girl. No, she, he dies. The final girl gets away. Oh, yes, okay. Well, then she, <laughs> she is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but he was only killed by his own grief. Uh, oh, so he's just gone into the kitchen. Yeah, well then, that what I'm ultimately getting at, where by connecting the idea of what was original for its time and what would you see today, is the idea of how influential it is and how much of its inventions, if they are inventions, you know, sort of um, don't seem quite as impressive, possibly because they have actually become. This, I mean, it seems impressive standard. to me. I'm like, you know, I think I'm going in my head, you know, just through some images again, mm. you know. Um, the the red mac um you know the the country house setting um the look of julie christie with those ringlets and her face extraordinarily beautiful but also slightly harsh yeah her cheekbones and her nose and there's some angles in which her face is very square yeah mm. uh, very very striking um there are things that i'm wondering about so one of the ladies, the two sisters, one of them keeps wearing this brooch, you know, and it's obviously very significant, right? Because you see her wearing it all the time. It's huge. It's it's a copy of something that's actually in the V&A jewelry collection. You know, it's a pearl. Um, I forget what they call it. You know, one of those uh, natural uh, pearls that is not round and it's not pear shaped. It's like an odd you know, thing that grows on its own, but they build it into this kind of mythical god figure on a boat rowing. Might be actually, who knows, what is the the guy on the boat, death in the river in Greek? Sticks. Sticks. You know, so it might be that. But 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 it's clearly significant, right? You see it all the time, and then there's the scenes where it's on the dresser, and you practically have a close up of it. Right, and I think Donald Sutherland, yeah, touches mm. it, 
right? Yeah, he does. It's yeah. kind of like, uh, you know, one of those things that's clearly significant, but you can't put your finger on. Mm-hmm. So, so I think for me, like, um, you know, you're already going in your head. There are things that you know are going to stay with you, right? Um, you know, some of the scenes are just a Venice looking so, so sad and worn and rusty and bleak and mm. foggy and yeah it's uh um there's a there's a song uh an Aznavour song that begins something like oh que c'est triste venise how, you know how sad venice can be when you, you know your loved one is not near you to enjoy it but there is something about you know how yeah uh, mm. venice is shrouded in sadness really uh, so, uh, you know, kind of, there's already all those things kind of playing in your mind and that you know are going to stay, even without kind of figuring yeah. the film out, really. It's like a grief-stricken state of mind writ upon the city. It feels... You know, it's funny what you were saying about the idea that the city looks so sad, but they bring life to it, those two. Yes. Because I think visually, they do. Visually, um, they do. And also, but, there's this thing about... All the service industries around them. So, for example, the hotel they're staying in, right? The, you, there's a moment where one of them asks, are you going to dine here tonight? And he says no. And, you know, so he, he instantly tells the waiter to go home, right? That they're the only customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a sense, yeah, that um, things are dead in Venice, yeah, as mm-hmm. well. Um, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look like... The, I mean, I've never been to Venice, but it doesn't look like the uh, beautiful place that everyone wants to, as you say, go to with their loved one. And Well, it yeah. looks quite beautiful. I mean, you know, those things of the um, the main canal and so on. I mean, they're still incredibly beautiful shots and that bridge, it's just the Bridge of Sighs or whatever it's called, the main one. Um, mm. I mean, with people looking at them. I mean, it still, it still looks beautiful, but... It does look run down, rusty, falling down. Actually, the film is full of signs saying, you know, uh, uh, Venice is disappearing. Help, mm. you know, Venice. So, because um, it was sinking under the sea. And so for all I know, it's still sinking under the sea. But, you know, periodically there are attempts to kind of, you know, rescue it. Yeah. And of course, it still exists. Um, but you see signs of that all throughout the film. Yeah. Um, Although, again, I don't know what the significance is. Uh, and there's also a fantastic Charlie Chaplin poster that the camera makes a point of showing you, mm. uh, which is Charlie Chaplin, uh, one man against the world. <laughs> you know, is that what it says? That's what it says, well, in Italian. Yes. Uno contro tutti, or one against all, or something like that. All yeah. oh, right. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, but really, I mean... I don't know what it means. <laughs> no, I don't know what it means. Just needs, you just like you just make a sort of mental list of all the things and you don't know what they mean. Yes, and it's a film that but that you want to find out. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, that's why you make the list. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> well, you know, at the beginning when I asked this question, you know, at what point, you know, does something, um, you know, because I think with art sometimes there is a mystery about it. There are things you can't put your finger on. But they kind of resonate, right? So, so you know, the, the beginning question, well, to what extent is the film kind of doing that? Or to what extent is it just not telling the story well? I mean, I'm quite sure that, you know, it, it's, it's, the, the, it's the former rather than the latter. Yeah, you know, that kind of, you know, it's, 
it's things that resonate and that you want to find out m things more and you want to you want to think about it more rather than you know kind of dismiss it as something well you know i don't get it and it's not worth finding out no but you can't dismiss the possibility that there are parts of it that may just not be very well told i'd be interested in reading the short story well actually i i Listen, you can dismiss the possibility, but I suspect this possibility is very small because this is a film which feels so clearly structured and so deliberate in its use of imagery and with so many recurring motifs throughout, mm. you know, that you don't think, oh, this is accidental. This has just been placed here because they don't know what they're doing. No, uh -huh. no absolutely. Uh -huh. um, no, not, not, it's, not, it's not slapdash, that's for sure. And you, I... Um, you can really feel the, the influence that it had on um, In Bruges as well. It's one yes. thing that I had vaguely heard, you know. And, um, and then you go, okay, so it's got the dwarf and it's got, it's got all the... All the I, I don't think... Are, are there canals in In Bruges or In Bruges? Or is it just a river system that there has been built on? Well, we Either were way. there. So. <laughs> know, there and there were definitely canals. I've been there so, a couple of times. Um, you know, now, whether it was a river before, but there's a, yeah, whole, there yeah. is a whole canal system. Yeah, it's, there's certainly a system. But anyway, um, it's you know they make good use of that in, uh, in, in Bruges. And um, the feeling of grief as well. Actually, underpinning everything mm. in in Bruges, the you know, the it's the the hitman's. Yeah, but you can only take that comparison so far. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. In Bruges is like so witty and so fast and such a dark <laughs> humor and so articulate in its humor. Whereas actually, I think a lot about this film is a kind of inarticulacy. You know, kind of none of the characters can really articulate what they're going through. You know. Um, it's like it feels much more emotionally kind of complex. They're I'm not sure that's true because the wife is all too happy to talk with the strangers about about her daughter. No, the wife is relieved that she's got someone to to be able to talk to about it. Right. Well, that's I think it amounts to the same thing though that she is happy to, you know, and it's and but I, to that's... say that she's happy to doesn't mean that she can articulate it well even to herself. I mean, you know, for one thing, she's like talking to bloody psychics. You know, I mean. She's not able to articulate kind of her feelings properly. Well, that would be the case, but I think it goes more to the point I was making about about the husband's inarticulacy emotionally or inavailability emotionally being being the, his his problem and being the reason that he is well, more troubled than she. Is. That is true, that's you what know, I mean. but it's a question of like degrees. I think neither of them are. They're like kind of enveloped in grief, really. Mm. You know, so. Um, so they're suffering, but actually, kind of whatever the complexities of their feelings towards each other, towards the you know the child that died, the child that survives, like you know, kind of all of those things are expressed in terms of feeling, but not you know in terms of an articulation of the, that feeling. Um, so I think it's quite telling the conversations that they have about you know going to the ch the child hurts himself, the other child, and you know whether to go to them or when to go to them or should they go to them, right? Like kind of you know. Um, yeah, so what they say and what they do and what you know they're feeling are different. They're not being articulate about their feelings. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I do think she is capable of it. That's the thing. I think what you say about her being relieved that she has someone to talk to. She's better true. at it than he is. Yeah. Um, but she actually wants to with him as well, you know, and he doesn't want to fairly explicitly. And when it gets to, oh, this woman's a psychic... She can help us. Mm. He shuts it down as quickly as he can. Yes. He's not interested. Well, which is a motif as well, right? It's her, his lack of awareness, even of, 
you know what he clearly has a talent for which is mm. you know to be in touch with the supernatural he keeps shutting it down so yeah but I think but like I, said, I think that what that that points up in their relationship is that is his emotional unavailability but not hers I, I think she is keen to try and deal with what she can she's it's not to say that she's not feeling grief you know I think it's clear that she is she's very sad but the, but then she wants to speak about her sadness and he doesn't want to he shuts it down yes um though yes no i mean i still maintain you know that she she's not articulating her feelings very well she wants to hear about her daughter you know so she finds out from these women that they can see her so she wants to talk about her but you don't get a sense of talking about her feelings of loss or pain or anger or sorrow that's not being articulated no that's true she wants to uh, she finds she might think it's an opportunity to find in some sense her get her back or connect with her yeah yeah I, yeah that's true so um anyway yeah um it's an interesting film and i don't know if we'll do a second podcast on it but i want to watch it again at least i want to try and get a better sense of yeah of how it works and and just in a plot logical sense sort of where things fit i think that might be nice it's one um, of those films and you know luckily now it's a classic because it makes me a want to see it again and b read a bit on it before I see it again. <laughs> yeah, mm. so I've now seen it. I've had that experience. I would like to go into a second screening kind of being, you know, uh, better informed. And I'm interested in reading the short story as well that it's based on, the uh, DeMorio story. Which, you know, I and, and that's... that's <laughs> well, I would normally draw the line, but it's appealing because it's short. Mm. It's a short story. It's uh, not a long story <laughs> that will require a vast investment of time. So I might read that. All right, good. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Cheerio. Good. Right, so um, it's the next day. We saw Don't It Now yesterday, and the reason for this little added bit is because I was chatting to my brother about it, um, who I told you has seen it before and likes mm. it, um, but I didn't get his thoughts, you know, sort of in time mm. for yesterday. But we were chatting about it in the evening, so I wanted to kind of bring up a couple of things we talked about uh-huh. and maybe see if you know there's something else to think about. Okay. So um, let me have a quick look at what we were. I haven't talked to anybody except Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so uh... so I, I said to him. I'm looking for the reasons it's good because, frankly, I don't get it. That was a text I sent just after we exited the cinema. Oh, right, okay. so that was before we did the podcast. He said, um, I know the feeling. It's not like I'm convinced of its brilliance. I don't know well enough to talk at length about it. Last time I saw it, it was billed with Kill List, which I think is interesting because that's another British horror um, because I compared it to Under the Skin and that's another British horror. And I mm. think there might be something about sort of how... Like not being like knowing that you kind of can't compete with Hollywood on its own terms makes you do, like. No, I think it's more than that. I think it's a film that sets out to be an artwork. So you know the whole processes of the beginning are to get you to think differently about different things. I mean, so you know you would expect the film to be like laying out, you know, a narrative structure and a whodunit and you know, to set up a world that might scare you or whatever. And actually, I don't think the film sets out to do that. I think the mm. film sets out to, I mean, it does create a world 
and it's attempting to kind of evoke and express a feeling in that world. So I think the project is already different. Yeah, yeah, from traditional horror. Yes, I mean, I was thinking today because I showed my students Chandalou and Lajdo, and of course, you know, they're films that work entirely on images, like they're not like normal traditional narrative films. Mm. You know, they have a narrative, but they play on narrative, right? Yeah, but the images are so extraordinary that they're doing, you know, a different kind of work. And I think in a different way that Don't Look Now is like that, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I, I did think in the first five minutes that, you know, this is the work of a great director. So it's a film that's setting out to do something different. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to... Uh, I, I, I wish I could stop myself from talking about it as horror because it isn't exactly horror. My expectations were that it was because everyone does describe it as a horror. No. But it really isn't. It's a psychological drama. I mean, people were saying, ooh, there was that horrible, scary bit where he falls uh, uh, from the ladder. And I didn't find it scary at all, really. Like, I mean, yes, there's suspenseful, right? Like, you're wondering whether he will fall or he won't fall. Mm. But it doesn't work on me, you know, the way that some horror films where you just, like, scream or you're horrified or you're disgusted. Or I had none of that watching this. No, exactly. It does have it does have that supernatural element and it has a bit of a ghost story element to it. But it's not. Yeah, it hasn't. It's it not has, out to creep. It's not out to scare you. In that it has way. an eeriness, mm. you know. So it has that mood of something that's eerie, that's supernatural, that is not uh, understandable through reason alone. Yeah, but that's not mm. the same as like a jump scare or something. No, but and and thinking about it, that's also true of Kill List and Under the Skin. In that you know, I suppose people do talk about them in very general terms as horror. Like, that's the genre they seem to fit closest into. But they're not really. Again, mm. they are doing something different. They're not out to scare you. They're out to generate different feelings. Um, but they do get kind of lumped in, I suppose. And it is hard. Once once people once you start talking about them as horror, it's kind of hard to stop yourself. Well, but, but you know, not it's not very useful. It's and not. it doesn't get at describing the film well or evoking what it feels like to watch well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, to me, the you know the closest thing that it comes close to, and that all of those films have in common, actually, is their art films. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what's you know you 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 have to figure it out, or you have to kind of get into their rhythms and see what they offer you. You know, and you have to let them take you in a direction that you don't expect. You know, and I think uh, Don't Look Now does that, and yeah. you know, uh, something else my brother said. Is he says I've never felt how the supernatural part quite fits into the grief storyline, and I said what I said to you yesterday about how the supernatural element of uh, Donald Sutherland's vision, second sight, means that these things, the way the way that he represses his um, grief, makes it shoot into his head even more, and then that's kind of combined with this idea that he can't, he doesn't know when, he doesn't know what he's looking at yeah. when things happen. He doesn't know that he has these visions. I think it kind of combines them. And then my brother said something which I liked. Um, he said, makes perfect sense. So that's a compliment. And then it's too late for him to face it. And the thought of his daughter has become this demon that kills him, which is, I think, quite a nice way of putting it. Like, like it makes manifest. Mm. Um his grief make, is made manifest in that dwarf figure. Yes. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the, you know, the supernatural and the grief come together, be, you know, through initially the figure of Julie Christie, right? 
I mean, um, she's grief struck. Uh, she has lived through this terrible moment of depression. You know, she meets these people who offer her um, comfort. Yeah, they, they, it's soothing to think that your child is not gone, that it's somewhere that you could communicate with. Right, so the feeling of grief and the supernatural connect in that moment of, you know, uh, uh, um, yeah, in that moment where she meets the, the two women. Mm. And then certain strands become more evident later. Yeah, like, you know, when you know that Donald Sutherland has these powers, you begin to understand why he leapt, you know, uh, out of the house and into the pond when he saw that slide. Yeah, because... You know, I mean, they were inside. He didn't hear anything. Yeah, it, it was mm -hmm. like almost like a something supernatural or, you know, unconscious that made him leap out and go outside and see, you know, how his child was. Yeah. So all of those strands, I think, kind of begin to connect. Well, the way that opening scene is edited has that image, the image of his daughter falling into the pond that flashes into his mind. Yeah. I think is what kind of becomes clearer in, with the context later on. But that's how it's edited. You know, the image flashes up and he responds to it. That's right. And also, but but there's that moment where, you know, the slide, the red seeps. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you go into the water and you see the, like, the, the drops and, you know, you just see, like, this flash of technicolor red, but kind of, you know, deep in the water so that, like, like the color... It only begins to seep through or to make itself apparent slowly. It's very beautiful, I think. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So, um, I do. Th I, I, I do think it's a great film, actually. Um, though, you know, all of those things about how they connect, like, you know, um, the sex when they're going outside and. You know, there's this melding of the past and the present and the future. And so this moment of connection and, you know, of intimacy, you know, is already kind of in the past before it's even happened. You know, I think kind of those mm. are very suggestive and beautiful things, you know, and they kind of um, contribute to the sadness that the film evokes, right? Because really, it's, it is a very melancholic film. And it captures that mood beautifully. I mean, there's grief throughout. I mean, even, you know, the rust in Venice speaks of grief and sadness and deterioration. Yeah. Yeah. It is really beautiful and it gets under your skin. Yes. Um, um, I think. And I suppose that's, that's the thing, that it does get under your skin. And it gets under your skin in ways that are not entirely... Uh, explainable through reason alone, you know, so, you know, let's say that I had a better, a more clear understanding now of how every bit of the film fits, you know, and how every piece of the film related to each other, which, you know, kind of, let's say for the sake of argument that it does, right? Um, but even without that, I mean, you you get kind of certain feelings from the patternings of things, right? You know, kind of the a figure in a red coat, kind of, you know, whose face you never see or whose face you see um, differentiated. So there's a different one. It's a memory and you see the girl's face 
or when they're wandering through Venice and they see the flash of the red coat where you never see the face, mm. I think. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Um, well, if you did, it would be a creepy old lady. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, and then it made me wonder, is that creepy old lady also the serial killer who's been killing all these people in Venice? Yeah, that's, right. that's, that's, it's a funny little, you go, oh, that's, is that the killer? I mean, yeah. I thought, I thought actually the old ladies might be the killer at first, like. Yes, I thought so too. You know, but he doesn't ever really resolve that. Yes, because um, there's a, there's a real creepiness to those two sisters. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, you know, what are they doing traveling everywhere? Um, yeah. And, you know, they make themselves manifest. They make themselves known. Right. Mm. So. Um, and yeah. there's one point where there's a clip of them uh, laughing together, cackling away in their room. Yeah. Like when they've just when they first sort of made contact with um, the wife and then she's going to come over. And that laughter was like, I, to me, it made me think maybe they were con artists. Yeah. They're know? setting up a trap somehow. Exactly. You know, yeah. uh, or she's fallen into a trap somehow. But then um, without that context. The laughter doesn't make as much sense. Like that yes. would make it make sense. The laughter doesn't make sense to me now because I know that they weren't like you know on the con. Well, I mean, I think there are things that are unresolved. I mean, um, yeah, maybe maybe there's a there's a different logic um, that uh, that is not comprehensible to me at the moment. Mm. Um, I really like the fact that. All the time, you're worried about the Julie Christie character, whereas really the person who's in danger is Donald Sutherland. I find mm. that really, really interesting. Yeah, in terms of gender. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and actually, I think I think that's something that's maybe not brought out enough. It's like so he's the one who's constantly reassuring, who's concerned for her, and so on. And it's not until like you know, that moment when she returns from the school that you realize really, you know, he's the one who's in danger. Yeah, and we know that along with her. I must say, it always, I, I did get the feeling throughout that he was, maybe in danger is not quite how I thought of it, but I did get the feeling that he was the one who um, had, like, the, the stakes were kind of associated with him, in a sense, like the story stakes, like the, the kind of whatever trouble would... Um, uh, kind of develop was more with him and it's because of what I was saying about how I just I felt like the Judy Christie character is is more you know sort of um, more capable of or willing to try and um, deal with her grief in an open way and that he and it's the fact that he isn't and is so clearly repressing things that kind of made me more concerned for him throughout the film than her well, I mean, that makes certain sense. And there are things that the film doesn't tell you. So, for example, you know, he tries to resuscitate her and fails, right? Like, uh, you know, pump her. CPR. Yeah, CPR. And then you wonder, things you don't see. I mean, does she blame him for it? Does she blame herself? Mm. Uh, should they, you know... Uh, there's a line later where it was, he's the one who thought it was great that the children should play out in the fields on their own, yeah. Oh, right, I don't remember that. Um, yes, it's a line. Um, it's it's when she wants to do something with the two women and he doesn't want to. And he says, well, you know, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and she begins to give a list of reasons of things. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. 
It also occurs to me, um, I remember thinking that... Um, I'm sure there are elements of the film when they're walking through the streets of Venice that they're getting lost and sort of walking in circles and coming back to places that... There's one point where they're really, really lost and then they come around a corner and see like a row of shops that they recognise. Yeah. Julia Christie says, oh, here we are. You know, and it's like, and it's like come around a corner and I know where I am again. But there is a sense of like, there's a labyrinthine feeling to Venice at times. When they yes, go. well, there's a labyrinthine feeling. There's a feeling of bleakness. I'm trying to make more sense, for example, of the hotel manager, you know, because there's all these things, like he gets a vase out, you know, and and uh, uh, something like, oh, lucky, lucky didn't break or lucky you didn't break it or, you know, so there's all these things about kind of objects in the past and breaking and being out of season and being attentive only to, you know, these two particular uh, travelers who are passing through, right? Um, so it's like, you know, they're passing through a city that is empty, that's out of season, that, you know, is just holding up, like, a, a, an edge of an appearance just for them, um, which kind of connects with the eeriness, yeah, and the supernatural kind of in interesting ways, but I haven't thought of it more than that. Yeah, you do kind of get the feeling that Venice in this film doesn't exist outside of them, in a way. Like, it's not... It, I mean, maybe that's... It's it's sort of like um, there's no people in it practically. Right, it's kind of know. sparse. Everything is obviously about them, but also they're there to well, the husband at least is there to change a certain part of the city um, with the work he's doing on the cathedral. But it's like um, you know, I, it sounds like a silly thing to say because pretty much any film, you know, the whatever you see of a place is where your characters are going. You know, so it kind of exists for them in that sense. But it does feel like everyone. And everything that they see is somehow aimed at them. Yes, though I think what's different than other films is they're either being held up in this place in a very minimal way. So, i.e. the hotel staff is a skeletal staff. They're dismissed when they're not around, right? So there's a sense in which the hotel is open just for them, Mm. right? Um, Which means that they're bringing something, but they're also holding things up. And then there's also a sense throughout that they're unwanted intruders. So they're constantly being, you know, shooed away from boats or, you know, mm. or places, right? Kind of, they, they happen to be chasing the figure in red. And then all of a sudden people come out and say, get off my boat or whatever it is that they're saying. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, so they're being shooed away from this place, you know, that's kind of empty and desolate and kind of, and then makes it seem unwelcoming. Yeah. Yeah. Also, what we didn't mention last time is that this is a 4K restoration. Oh, yeah. Yeah, And actually, that's the reason for showing it in cinemas. And it is really, really beautiful. It is. And actually, I also think it's something that demands being seen in a big screen. Because if you have the attention span that I do, I tell you, you know, you're seeing those (laughs) images and they're quiet and they're held for a long time and... You know, and my mind would be wandering to other... I mean, I'd be on Twitter or Facebook or, you know... And actually, it's a film that you have to allow yourself to be enveloped by. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially because I suppose it was rather a lot slower than I expected. Yeah. I mean, my expectations were of a really um, 
really weird kind of active horror. That's mm. everything that I knew about it or thought that I knew about it, everything that I heard gave me the sense that this would be kind of throwing sort of madness at me from every angle, mm. which is not what it does at all. So the fact my expectations were so off kilter, off caliber with what actually the film was meant that um you know sort of had I seen it on a small screen something like that um I may well have lost interest. Yes. You know and it's that thing of being locked in keeps you there. You have to watch it and yeah, yeah. and realize realize what it actually is. Yeah, it's that kind of film. It really does demand being seen on a big screen, and this is a very very beautiful uh, restoration. Yeah, it was great. So, All right, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, yeah. Cheers. I'm going to pour myself a bit more coffee. Of course you are, my son.